you try to impose your opinion to others, that would lead to not the best outcomes for your patients. You need to talk to your patients, understanding their fears, trying to explain whether you know or don't about safety of the vaccines. Tune in today to hear about the impact of the COVID jab upon children with epilepsy. From paediatric neurologist and epileptologist Sebastian Ortiz. Sebastian actually had a mum ask him if the jab was safe for her child. And it's because he couldn't actually answer this question that he chose to do the study. Thank you for joining us today, Sebastian. Could you please tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Sebastian Ortiz. I'm from Colombia. I'm a paediatric neurologist and epileptologist. I work primarily with uh, refractory epilepsy and genetic epilepsy. So I became a paediatric neurologist because I love neurologists neurology but I don't like adults so I came <laughs> to the other side to go to the kids side discrimination man but okay <laughs> I guess they're cuter yeah they are <laughs> making us adults feel left out as always but, um, so, but what led you to specialize in the epilepsies because it's a rather specific field isn't it yeah it is uh, well I have a my uncle has epilepsy and my my uni best, best friend has epilepsy so I want I want to know why they had epilepsy or how can I help them because I, 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 I know the pain of seeing a loved one having a seizure and um, and all these side effects of medications you cannot drive, you cannot do this, you cannot do that and I want to understand why and then I, I met a kid with epilepsy and, and, and then he became seizure free and he can ride his bike again and I found that uh, amazing so that that's that's probably why I end up in epilepsy. You're also one of the value clinicians who actually recognizes that epilepsy is not solely about seizures and seizure control but it's actually about comorbidities such as mental health difficulties such as autism or autistic traits such as you know physical difficulties etc is that right? Yes definitely so patients are, are not only seizures, you know. Uh, we as clinicians always aim for zero and and zero seizures, but uh, you can have depression, you can have anxiety, and you can have uh, intellectual disability, and we often don't seek those psychiatric problems in those patients. Uh, and it's, it's alive, as you said in your podcast, we are humans, and humans are everything, not only one disease or one specific part of your disease. In pediatric populations we have a lot of comorbidities that are related directly to the etiology. So it's not only seizures but uh, the cognitive uh, impairment or uh, movement disorders or autistic traits that we need to address at the same time. And then also I think often which can be a challenge is prioritization, right? So what is the biggest or the most significant negative uh, illness, but you know, thing on this person's life and what, and what needs to be addressed first of all and what needs to be addressed simultaneously? Yes, because seizures are striking, you know. Once you have a, a, a person next to you seizing, that, then on, the only thing you care is about seizures. But when you talk to the patient, you get to see that probably the seizures are important, but not as important as being clouded because of your medications and not being able to learn at school, for example. 
uh, or having a relationship because you're you have fears you have anxiety because maybe you have you can have a seizure with your partner so yeah and that can be the most important thing rather than seizure control one of the most positively impactful things for us all is education about the epilepsy about the comorbidities about the treatments it just it just becomes quite empowering when you understand a bit more about it because not understanding at least to a certain degree can lead people to believe things that aren't necessarily overly logical and i think that kind of takes us to the topic <laughs> which we were going to base this around actually um, this conversation around which is actually the covid vaccination and the perception of the covid vaccination by people with epilepsy and families with um, affected by the epilepsies could you tell us about your work on that please here where i work we have uh, authorization to vaccine children above three so one of the biggest thing we found on, in our clinic before this was released it was okay um will my kid have an increase of seizures because of the vaccination will my drug ape kid had uh, a status epilepticus related to fever is it safe i have a lot of questions uh they even had questions that from a medical point of view would were weren't like logical but for them having something related to genetic like an rna vaccine can hamper the probability of having genetic treatment in the near future because of the mutation they have uh, so we try to educate patients and solve the questions because one of the things we have found is when you try to impose your opinion to others that would lead to not the best outcomes for your patients you need to talk to your patients understanding their fears trying to explain whether you know or don't about safety of the vaccines and those who were uh, able to get their kids vaccinated and they were willing to uh, to offer the information to us to provide uh, data to, to those who were reluctant or afraid of having the vaccination. So this study that you've done, how many um, patients have been involved in it and over what sort of spectrum, age, refractory epilepsy, types, different types of genetic or non-genetic epilepsies, how do they vary? So it's a very heterogeneous group yeah we have patients above three and below 18 we have controlled epilepsy uh, patients we have refractory epilepsy patients we have genetic patients and we have this uh the surgical following up of patients with that we have performed surgery uh, uh, because everyone with epilepsy have has their own, their own fears uh, not only those who are controlled others then had surgery and say okay i don't want to get vaccinated if i have the risk of having another seizure so it's a very heterogeneous um, sample and how long did it take you to do this study we started in november last year and we ended up uh, recruiting patients in march what were the challenges in this study our biggest fear was if we have a seizure related temporarily to the vaccine how can we establish if this seizure was related directly to the vaccination rather than the seizure frequency of that particular patient, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one is that you need to rely 
on the seizure diary or the memory of the patients and said, okay, my last seizure was two weeks ago and my vaccination was three weeks ago. Fortunately, we have these cards on, on vaccination. We know the exact date, but we didn't know uh, because we are depending on, on, on patients and caregiver uh, recall on the dates of seizures. But it's the best that you can that you can do right <laughs> you can't be yes, next to yes. each uh, each patient at 24 hours a day and so th tell us exactly what the results uh, showed and what was surprising and what was not surprising in my personal experience with my second and third dose I had fever chills and uh, ghost bumps but in our cohort only 20% had fever after vaccination, we only had one patient that had a seizure after the, the day after the vaccination. Uh, she didn't have fever, and we don't know if this is related to uh, the, her seizure frequency, which was one seizure per, per week, or uh, it was related to, to the vaccination, but it is one out of 180. And, and it wasn't status epileptic,us Yes, it wasn't. Uh, and the other patient that we had to exclude it because of, uh, of her previous diagnosis is that we had one patient that developed uh, a PNS after the vaccination. Ooh. So uh, we didn't want to include it because it was it wasn't the scope of our of our research. But but we need to address that people can have PNS after vaccination and this is a possibility or having a faint or any other differential. You're just making me think of the reasons that they sometimes offer biscuits when I go and get a vaccination or something. Um, I, I don't know if they do that also but sometimes when I went to go and get my um, all of my COVID jabs over here they would offer me biscuits just in case I felt faint and I just pretend I felt faint and ate a biscuit, <laughs> but I never thought. <laughs> yeah, we have cute band-aids with smiley face. You haven't released um, the, the paper officially yet. Um, what do you anticipate for the reaction to be to your paper? And 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 whose whose reaction are we going to be looking at? We're going to be looking at the reactions from clinicians or from possibly patients and families, or hopefully both. What's the intention? It goes both ways. Uh, there will be a lot of criticism about uh, the design of the study because we have no control about uh, the recall of the seizure. Uh, we have evaluated a lot of different vaccines that are not EMA or FDA approved, like the, Chine the Chinese one or the Indian one, uh, because those are the ones we have here in Colombia. Uh, and also educate those patients who are reluctant to get the vaccine because of the fear or because of uh, misconceptions or, or previously, uh, you know, <coughs> information regarding the vaccines, because we all need to to show evidence. Uh, and again, it's not by confronting them and saying, okay, you are wrong, it's about saying, okay, this is the evidence I have with my patients that we don't have any increase of seizure frequency or status epilepticus with the vaccine. And that those patients taking anti-seizure medications didn't have any adverse effects or related effects uh, 
between the ASM and the vaccination? Personally, I, I'm quite happy to hear the, the results of your study. But equally, I mean, I might have felt a bit put out if it had shown that perhaps some people would be more likely to have a seizure after um, the vaccination. But that would be the truth. And it would be, and that is what is valuable. So it's kind of, whether we like the answer or not, <laughs> that's, that's what, what the answer is, um, like many things in life. Definitely. And, and you need to publish the results, whether they are positive or negative. Because again, it's information to be safe. If we happen to find that people will have an increased seizure frequency, then we should advise people with epilepsy, okay, be careful, try to take anti-rescue uh, medication before your jab or whatever plan to protect you from having an increased number of seizures. And that's important too, because information is information. Whether you like it or not, you need to put it out to, to your patients. And, and this study was, was done because the first patient that asked me about COVID vaccination, my response is, I don't know. And she said, okay, if you don't know, then I won't put the COVID vaccine in my kid. So I had to start seeking information about who has published about this. And until now, probably we only have the Drave paper. It was released a couple of weeks ago. That shows no increase in status epilepticus and no increase in the seizure frequency of those patients. But outside that, uh, we didn't have any information, for example, with uh, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy or childhood absence epilepsy or uh, STXBP1 uh, patients with epilepsy or Drave epilepsy. So that's why we came with the idea, okay, uh, it's kind of mandatory in our country to get vaccinated. You can say no, but uh, you cannot enter to anywhere. You can go to anywhere. So probably you will get vaccinated. Uh, and we need to provide them with information, with local data, and probably to show this data to others that are in the same spot as we are. There isn't anything shifty being put into a needle for you to be injected with. It's all, <laughs> it's a vaccination thing and that, is, and that is it. So how do you think we can change things going forward when it comes to people's doubts regarding vaccinations or really treatments that people have when they have epilepsy, whether it's to do with the epilepsy or not? Probably the first thing is to listen your patient because uh, you have your own thoughts and you have your own worries and you have your own mm, conception related to everything anti-seizure medications vaccinations if I want to impose my opinion over yours then we don't have a relationship because the, the most important thing is to educate yourself as a clinician to say to see what your patients need and on the other hand, try to deliver the best of you so they can understand why you are doing what you are doing. Because that's important as well. Uh, probably for me, uh, as we discussed previously, seizure-free was the very first thing to do. And nowadays you know that it's important, but it's not the only thing you have to take into account when you're taking care of patients with epilepsy. And if you can prevent an infectious disease that could lead you to death, or can lead you to serious injury. Probably the best way is to address what are your what are your fears. Do you have any concerns about safety? Then we can provide information that okay, it's safe for for people with epilepsy, and try to 
discuss further if there's more questions regarding that. There's no such thing as a bad question. Yes, exactly. There's no bad questions. Depression, anxiety. We have seen uh, in a recent paper that 25% of adolescents with epilepsy after the pandemic have, have at least moderate or severe depression or anxiety. How are we addressing that? And this anxiety can be related to, for example, COVID. Mm. And if I can say them, it's safe for you to get your vaccine, probably your anxiety can ameliorate at, le at least a little bit. Or it can be actually sometimes, from people I've spoken to, it could be like the anxiety of a parent which comes down onto the child. So the child might say, okay, do you know what? I want to get the jab. But the mum and dad is like, no, you're not getting that because it might do this and that. And they feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that is so anxiety inducing, which can then cause seizures and, you know. <laughs> and in the end, the, the issue of ha having kids on the clinic is that the decision is often taken by their parents or their caregivers, not by their own patients and and especially those who are affected by intellectual disability or autism spectrum disorders they often do, don't get the chance to be asked and they must be asked even though you know that the response can be uh, childish or whatever it doesn't matter they have a voice and and, and they need to speak out that's so i'm so happy that you said that because i think often people um, in in those sort of situations, they might not be used to actually being asked things. It, it can often be their their loved one, their mum, dad, their care or whatever, who's asked the question and they're just almost like disregarded. But even if they don't say anything the first or second time that you address them, knowing that what they have to say or what they think or what they want to communicate is valuable, that is invaluable. Yes. And for example, for seizure semiology, who's the one having a seizure? So you need to address the, the thing that we used to call aura because if you don't ask the aura only the parents will tell you the tonic-clonic phase of the seizure. Right. So patients have a voice. There are certain circumstances where they can't and that's acknowledgeable but in the end you need to do your best to understand who are you treating. It's not the mom, it's not the dad, it's not the granddad patient and what's important for her or for him is not important or not necessarily the most important thing for the parents and I, I think that's where lots of parents can sometimes struggle is they don't realize that they don't understand what the child is going through and I think to actually have it declared to them dude you don't actually know what your kid's going through and I need to speak to your child one-to-one -one or at least to them directly more than to, to that pa parent. I think that can be quite difficult sometimes for them to, to, not to comprehend, but to accept because it's their baby. And they're often used to just, is that right? Yes, yes, definitely. They are overcaring, you know, it's, it's, it's my kid. Uh, I just want the best for him. And the anxiety they have, we, we have saying here in Colombia that uh, kids are like sponge. They absorb everything around them either the good things or the bad things so if you are you have anxiety if you have uh issues regarding the the, the thing that your kid has he's he or she's going to understand that and it's going to suffer yeah definitely yeah 
It's like when you have um, children and you don't you don't find out the kids have gone through what they've gone through until they're an adult and they're hopefully able to articulate it, probably to a counsellor, that I had to deal with these feelings of my parents and I couldn't express myself because of this and this and I was left completely alone. And And then I think when parents hear about that, they're just devastated. They didn't know what their child was actually going through and that their child was often trying to protect them because it's a natural instinct isn't it you don't want to hurt them even though they're older and bigger than you so yeah the sooner that I think parents can be open to having you as their neurologist epileptologist communicate solely with with the little one the little one the the child however they may be up to 17 I think that that's the, the better I think I think that's a really good a really good uh, thing to do even though they are the little ones they do have questions they do have fears okay this guy is saying that it's going to put electrodes in my head with something called stereo whatever i cannot even pronounce i don't want that so you you need to explain them because they are the ones who are going through the process they're going to be uh, at the clinic they're going to be at the hospital they're going to be in the theater so you need to talk to them. That's the most important thing. Yeah, and do you know what's interesting? It can go the other way around. So sometimes, um, and no doubt you'll have had this as well, with children, or you know they find this quite cool and exciting. What are you going to do? That's my head. How does that work? Like, whoa. And But the mum or the dad's going, oh, my child. And they're so scared. And the kid picks up on that fear, and then they become scared. Yeah, they're taking selfies with the stereo EEG electrodes putting on like okay this is my new haircut <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> it's a new trend <laughs> yeah 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 so yeah that that's that's the way it is it's almost like it sounds like family therapy with each appointment <laughs> like trying to communicate with all parties that's why we we work in teams uh, i couldn't do that on myself we have a great staff with our epilepsy nurse with the psychologist with our psychiatrist because in the end um there is no man alone, neither the physicians or nor the, the patients. And actually, I think few families are aware of all the different people involved and the work that's done behind the scenes. So I'm glad you mentioned that. But perhaps that's something we can delve into in, a, in another podcast. But thank you so, so very much for your time today. This has been real fun chatting. And um, we look forward to seeing you in the UK soon. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Take care. Thank you, Tori. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.